Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host as we work our way through the sermons of the pastor-preacher from Victorian London, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preacher at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, and today a sermon that was delivered on the 28th of June, a Lord's Day morning in 1868. His text is Job chapter 38 and verse 31. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Job 38 verse 31. For context, this is the sermon that we're featuring this week. Uh, It's sermon 813. For the week as a whole, we're reading from 808 to 814, and you can usually find a few daily gems at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. But each week, the featured sermon zeroes in on one representative text, and this is our sermon for this week. If you want to know more, please visit mediagratii.org, and you can find us there in the podcasts section. That's mediagratii.org slash podcasts. So, on to our sermon. Spurgeon begins by emphasising that this text needs to be taken in its proper and literal sense. He refers to the Pleiades themselves, very small but intensely bright stars in a singularly beautiful cluster, and then the conspicuous constellation of Orion with its glittering belt best seen toward the close of autumn, just before the coming in of the winter. His point in emphasising the physicality, the Uh, heavenly realities in the sense of the the astronomical realities, is that God is in control of these things. The farmer is entirely dependent upon the God of heaven. He may plough with industry and cast in the good seed with hope, but unless the sweet influences of heaven shall be given, he can reap no harvest. He's absolutely dependent upon God, and we who know so little of agricultural operations, talking about people in London removed from the country which God has made, living in the town which man has made, are as dependent on any, for even the king is nourished by the fruit of the field, according to Ecclesiastes. Follow what merchandise we will, still ultimately it is from the field that our nourishment must come. And so we're dependent on uh, God, as it were, bringing in the, the summer and the winter, which are represented then by these uh, two different constellations, uh, the Pleiades and Orion. You cannot hasten the spring that comes with Pleiades, or you cannot postpone the winter brought in by Orion. Neither can you prevent those calamities which plunge nations in distress, nor prohibit those mercies which lift up tribes into prosperity. So the general teaching of this text, the doctrine of a divine providence is calculated to create in the minds of the thoughtful and believing the spirit of resignation, and he means their submission, not, not carelessness or fatalism. They might perhaps rebel and struggle if this were of some avail, but since it would be utterly useless, since the great wheels of providence proceed in their perpetual revolutions, not pausing for our tears, nor hastening for our groans, then it is best for us to admire it as it revolves, to believe that it is producing good, and to submit ourselves to whatsoever the Lord appoints. So Spurgeon has taken this text in its context. Job 38, the Lord God Almighty is speaking to his servant Job. He is 
reminding him of his absolute power, his government over all things, and here, by drawing attention to the Pleiades, or the bands of Orion, he's emphasising not only does he put the stars in their courses, but he is governing uh, the uh, the uh, equinoctial, the, uh, the seasonal changes that are brought about as the sweet influences of the Pleiades are brought in, or the, the bands of Orion show themselves in the night sky. Now, Spurgeon shifts gear, having made this introduction. And I've emphasised the, the element that he starts with because it's important to recognise that he doesn't neglect or ignore it. What he wants to do is to use this as an illustration. As we are told that no man can restrain the benign influences of the Pleiades, so in the first place, men cannot utterly prevent the working of the gracious spirit. And as men in the second place cannot loose the bands of Orion, so men of themselves are not able to overcome those wintry powers which sometimes seize upon the human heart. These two things, and then, in the third place, he says, the lessons from them. So Spurgeon has moved from the natural to the spiritual. He acknowledges the immediate and primary sense of the text, but elevates the issue to the spiritual realm as illustrative of the operations of the Holy Spirit. He's doing what he so often does, of uh, using this imagery to teach spiritual lessons. And he does so, I think, inventively, creatively and sensitively. It's not casual, it's not careless, it's not hyper-spiritualization. He's saying in the same way as God governs the, the winter and the spring with regard to the natural world, so God, by his gracious spirit, is able to control what takes place in the spiritual springtime of a man's heart. And he, uh, with regard then to the, the wintry influences, he says, that sometimes seize upon the human part, those things cannot be bound if men cannot loose the bands of Orion. It needs the Holy Spirit there also. So quite uh, spiky, quite spicy in the way that he handles this. Who then, he asks, shall bind the sweet influences of the Holy Ghost? The Holy Spirit, he says, does not always operate in the same degree of power. But when his time, his set time to favour Zion is come, then, blessed be God, he is like the dew upon the grass that waiteth not for man, neither tarrieth for the sons of men. So we don't always see the Holy Spirit operating to the same degree in the world. But when he works, then he works in his own sovereign power by his own sovereign determination. Spurgeon's point is that the human or the diabolical cannot restrain the influences of the God of heaven and earth when he is pleased to visit and to bless his church. And he runs through some of the things that won't work. So, for example, slander. When Christians or whole churches are accused and abused of all kinds of things. Happy are you, beloved, says Spurgeon, when they say all manner of evil against you for Christ's name's sake, for you can reply to your accusers, can you bind up the sweet influence of the Holy Ghost? 
Can you stay from my soul? That is, can you hold back from my soul the divine and overflowing consolations which proceed from the Pleiades of promise when they shine full upon my soul? So if the Pleiades are the the harbinger of spring and blessing, and the Holy Spirit is uh, like them in his bringing blessing to the church, the slander of men will not be able to prevent it. And then sometimes open persecution follows on from slander. March before us, says Spurgeon, you cruel ranks of persecutors, each with the hell brand on your brow, you sons of Cain, you brothers of Korah, you disciples of Balaam. You have never been able to impede the onward march of the church of God. No, not so much as for a single hour. Vain were your arts and villainies, for God from heaven fought against you. Very encouraging then. Spurgeon is is working through these particulars. He's emphasizing some of these realities. He wants us to know that uh, though men may accuse us, though we may be assaulted physically as well as verbally, that these things will not be able to prevent the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And in each of these cases, we don't have time to, to dive into all of it, but he does a quick survey of uh, both experience and history to emphasize that even though these things can be seen in the, the way that the church has been dealt with over the years by the godless, nevertheless, it has never restrained the influence of the Holy Ghost. He talks about heresies which at different times have crept into the church of God. Yes, it's been hard sometimes to distinguish between uh, truth and error. There have been those who've tried to undermine the truth, to assault the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes by a religious attack, sometimes by setting up secularism or rationalism as opposed to the supernatural truth as it is in Jesus. But, says Spurgeon, they cannot stand against the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he goes on and reminds us that in man himself, not just generally speaking in the way that the world assaults, but in man himself, there is nothing that can prevent the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit, though there is great opposition. What sorts of things? Well, there's a man's natural enmity. He is opposed to God in his very nature. There is, though, says Spurgeon, no opposition between the doctrine of irresistible grace and the fact of the free agency of man. We do not dream, as some falsely imagine, he says, that physical force is used by the Lord with men's moral natures. But we do teach that there are appeals and persuasions, arguments and forces which are applicable to the will, which, without violating its freedom even in the smallest degree, yet overwhelm it and subdue it to the right and the true, so that the man with full consent yields up himself to the full power of divine love. So, man in his nature set against God, God in his mercy dealing with man, bringing his means to bear upon the soul. And so, by degrees, as the Spirit of God works in the heart and brings those things to bear upon the human soul, that soul is willingly subdued. Spurgeon emphasizes again, we do not mean the violation of the will, but we do mean this, that where the Holy Spirit comes, though the man's will may have been obstinate enough before then, when he exerts his wondrous influences, he makes the will to yield itself at once. The man is made willing in the day of God's power. The sweet influences of the Pleiades, 
remember the spiritual emphasis, are not bound even by human rebellion. That's true not just before conversion, but after conversion. Spurgeon says if your experience is anything like mine, you sometimes get into a very horrible state of mind. You feel as if you had no spiritual life at all. You, you cannot pray, or if you pray, you don't enjoy it. You go up to the house of God and you get no comfort. You turn to the Bible and behold no gleams of light. You feel like you're living at a poor, dying rate. And then God, in his mercy, is pleased to lift up your soul. The Holy Spirit draws near, and perhaps before you're aware and without almost even looking for it, you're filled with spiritual life and spiritual vigour. Even in your regenerate state, there is no power in you to secure those things, but neither is any influence upon you able to bind the work of the Spirit in your soul. Is that true in an individual? So it's true in the body of Christ in the church. He says, I'm sure this church was in about as bad a plight as we could well suppose for the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit to work in it. It was a scattered flock. It was divided and brought low. Yet, though there were a thousand discouragements, no sooner did the Holy Spirit visit this church than see how it began to multiply and rejoice. He's probably reaching back there to his first visits to the New Park Street Chapel. Remember now he's in the Metropolitan Tabernacle building, but back then it would have been a, a, a reasonably large building, but with a reasonably small congregation, a place that could have seated hundreds that was seating scores. And the Holy Spirit drew near, and not all the divisions or difficulties or discouragements that that congregation faced were able to prevent the Spirit blessing when the Spirit of God was pleased to bless. And... He goes on showing mercy and he says you need to be careful as a congregation that you do not in any way grieve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit may withdraw on account of sin. It's not that you've prevented him blessing, but rather you've grieved his heart. Be tender, therefore, of the Holy Spirit. O oh, you who know his power, trifle not with any of his divine warnings. Be jealous lest you grieve him. Follow his faintest, faintest monitions, and in all things do him honour as your friend and guide. So much then for these blessed influences. So much for the, the Pleiades with their promise of, of spring and of life. Now, flipping it over, following the course of the text... There is a winter time with both churches and individuals when Orion is in the ascendant. Remember, Orion is the harbinger of winter. And then, though we could well wish to do so, we are not able to loose the bonds of the frost. So what Spurgeon's really saying in the first point is that the Holy Spirit is well able to accomplish all he pleases, however much men may resist or be uh, passive and inert. But the second side of this is that we ourselves are not able to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. He says, it's sadly true in individual cases. My dear brothers and sisters, he goes on, I suppose in your endeavours to do good you've met with persons in despair. There are none who more thoroughly baffle all the arts of the human comforter than these. You bring them the gospel and they see it but refuse it. If they cannot help it, they will sometimes get a little light, but only let them have time enough and they will shut their eyes and get into the dark again. 
They bring objections and you answer them so conclusively that you could almost laugh at them. But they only renounce one set of fears to raise another. You hunt them out of one hole and you close it so that they can never get into it again. Alas, they make another. You drive them forth again. They find another retreat. They are most ingenious in inventing reasons for misery. They are diligent in the business of tormenting themselves. They are good people, really have the fear of God, are desirous of eternal life, have it even, and yet for all this are involved in a net in which the more they struggle, the more they are entangled. Like men in the mud of the river Nile who, sinking in it, splash and plunge only to sink deeper every time. Spurgeon asks, have you not felt altogether confounded in dealing with them? I think any pastor who's genuinely sought to shepherd a flock of Jesus Christ of any size would answer, yes, absolutely confounded. Haven't you come out of the house, says Spurgeon, and said, I did think I could comfort people. I had some sort of conceit, some sort of imagination that I could have brought forward precious promises which might have cheered the hopeless, but I am altogether beaten. I can do nothing. That's not at all uncommon. And Spurgeon reminds us that we do not have the power to operate in the hearts of men so as to lift this gloom. That belongs only to the Holy Spirit. If it sometimes becomes a puzzle how to cheer others, he goes on, I'm sure it's so with yourself. Whenever I get under the bands of Orion, I find I cannot loose them from my own hands. There are some very happy, cheerful spirits who appear to have no winter, but the most of us occasionally fall into doubts and fears and spiritual decays when our liveliness and joy are at a low ebb. We cannot deliver ourselves under such circumstances. The soul gets frost-bound and ice-bound. It used to, to run like a flowing stream, but now it seizes up. God alone is able to make the sun to shine upon such a soul. He's pleased to do so, and not all our coldness can prevent the Spirit's operations, but we cannot do it for ourselves. The same is true in connection with each soul. He says, I think he's speaking to his Sunday school teachers, you're going into your classes this afternoon, and I would be far from dispiriting you or discouraging you, but I would have you remember that if you attempt to convert a soul yourself, you'd better first answer the question of our text, can you loose the bands of Orion? It were easier for you to turn winter into summer than to turn a child of wrath into an heir of grace. You have a task before you which is utterly impossible to human strength. Conversion is no more in your power than creation. Regeneration does not lie with you, but men are begotten again by the great father of spirits unto a lively hope. Bow before the power of God, but feel at this moment your own utter powerlessness in the work to which he has called you, to turn an understanding from darkness to light, to make the stubborn will supple, to break the iron sinew of pride and make the neck to bow with cheerful obedience. This belongs not unto you, but unto the eternal spirit who is omnipotent in the world of mind. Think of this and go in his strength and not in your own. At this point, let me just uh, pause to say, it's interesting the way that Spurgeon has decided that on this occasion he's going to follow the order of the text. A couple of points here and there I'm thinking, could you have done maybe the, the, the bands of Orion first and said, you can't do this in your own power, and then moved on to the Pleiades and said, 
But actually, the Holy Spirit can do what you cannot accomplish. I'm not sure that that would have necessarily disrupted the the flow of the text or his illustration. Maybe it would have meant that he could have brought a little bit more uh, uh, emphasis to bear at, at particular points. But you can see how he's going back and forth between the two, that even when he's talking about the Pleiades, he sort of reminds us of, if you like, Orion's belt and bonds. But when he talks about Orion, he reminds us what he's already said about the Pleiades, that if there's going to be spring, then your winter cannot prevent it. But if there is winter, then you do not have the power to bring spring. Anyway, back to the the flow of his sermon. Brothers, if it be so with individuals, it's equally so with entire congregations. The missionary enterprise, he says, apart from supernatural influence, is the most insane that ever crossed the mind of man. How can you go out into Christ's vineyard to to reclaim those who are his without the, the power of the Holy Spirit? Spurgeon says it's the same when you're trying to revive a slumbering church. I discern a a sleeping church, he says, pretty readily. When I'm preaching in any place, I can soon tell what kind of people I'm preaching to by their very looks. So there's this, uh, he says, "I I can see what's going on when I look in people's faces. There's a fire that flashes where there's life. Truth draws forth a responsive glance. Good men's bosoms heave while Christ is preached. But in some places, hearers are stolid, cold and dead. You might almost as well preach to the green hillocks that surround the church as preach to them. I think he means go out into the graveyard. They stir not, they move not, neither can they be moved. Now at such times it's very dispiriting unless one can fall back upon the belief that the Holy Ghost can, if he wills, on a sudden quicken the most dead of all professing churches and make his people again to live so that like the dry bones of Ezekiel's vision, they shall stand upon their feet, an exceeding great army, ready to fight the battle of their master. So, here you go, back and forth again. Yes, you cannot do this by yourself. You cannot loose the bonds of Orion. Feel your own powerlessness, but remember the power of the Holy Ghost. You cannot restrain it, and you cannot influence him. And these then are the lessons that he wants to draw forth. First of all, on the very surface lies this lesson of humility. It's always dangerous to be useful, he says. It's to be desired above silver and coveted above fine gold. And yet, when obtained, it has its measure of dangers. For Satan will whisper, even if natural pride do not, what an excellent man you must be. What qualifications there must be in you. What glory God gets out of you. See, says the devil, hundreds saved under you, believers comforted under you. And then the foul thought, the wicked thought, seeks to build its nest right under the eaves of God's own temple in the heart. You're something after all. You're really somebody. Spurgeon says that we need to be brought back to this. You can do nothing out of Christ. You are, apart from him, a withered bough to be gathered and cast into the fire. Yes, thou preacher, powerful, useful, honoured of God, nothing but a withered bough apart from Christ. Yes, thou godly woman, thou godly earnest man, engaged in the Sabbath school or in the Bible class, all speak well of thee, and yet thou art a cloud without rain and a well without water, unless thou hast a vital union with Christ. So important to remember that while we do what we do at God's command, it is with God's blessing alone that we see the fruit. 
And you don't even need to be a man who's seen hundreds saved or believers massively comforted to let these things uh, creep into your soul. Tragically, uh, especially in days when there seems to be uh, less of this kind of blessing taking place, you only need a little favour for this kind of notion to creep into your heart. Spurgeon says, Remember that you cannot in any way bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion. Remember your humility. And then, how much then of gratitude and adoration to God ought to be in our hearts. Blessed be the Lord. We cannot have sunk so low, but he can lift us up. We cannot be so barren and so comfortless, but what he can make us fruitful and give us joy and peace again. There is no church which he cannot revive. Are you members of congregations which are slumbering? Do not despair. Will you go? You will go home after the day's service and say, I wish I could do some good here, but I'm only one. No, dear brother, you cannot loose the bands of Orion, but God can. The great head of his church can suddenly come into the temple and fill it with his glory. He can rake together the almost expiring ashes and kindle the fire anew and bring the sacrifice and make your church yet to be a temple to his praise. Glorify the name of God, the all-powerful one. Never let despair cross your soul. While he lives who made heaven and earth, while he works who bears up the pillars of the universe, while he loves who once gave up his son to redeem us, there can be no cause for trembling. Zion shall be comforted. Her days of gladness shall dawn. Her winter of sorrow shall flee away. God is on her side and Orion relaxes his bonds. When God is pleased to bless, God will bless. And that's gratitude and that's adoration to the soul that grasps it. And then a third lesson. Behold the path and walk of faith because it is not a path that is walked in human power. It relies always this faith upon God. Can you bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades? Faith answers, I can. If Joshua bound the sun, put chains upon the horns of the moon, faith feels that she can do the same. Can you loose the bands of Orion? I, says faith, that I can. For if Elias for three years of drought prayed and the heavens were covered with clouds, what can we do by the power of him that lives and rules in the highest heavens? Now, notice that Spurgeon isn't saying here, forget everything I've just said. If you've got enough faith, you can do what the Holy Spirit can do. That is not what he's saying. Faith has the art, the skill of getting hold upon the arm of God. And then, though she cannot stir or move in her own strength, yet she moveth the arm of God that moves everything. She touches the motor nerve of omnipotence and he acts whose action is conquest, whose work never fails. Oh, brothers and sisters, he says, if we can believe and pray, all things will be possible to us and we shall hold the Holy Spirit bound in this church to remain with us for many and many a year, for he will never depart while his people's cries and tears and joyful thanksgivings are like a golden chain to stay his blessed feet. He will be bound and held by us. It is the cry of faith, then, that can hold fast to the Spirit of God, the Spirit who delights to bless in his own power and for his own glory. Prayer and faith, then, do loose the bonds of Orion in the sense that they lay hold upon the Almighty Spirit. We will have sinners saved. We will have churches revived. We will have London yet warmed with the life of God. 
not because we can do it, but because we will give him no rest until he comes forth from his secret dwelling place and make the power of life of his truth to be known from the ends of the earth. Where is Spurgeon going? The drift of the sermon is to cut you off from yourselves and throw you flat on your faces before God. Sinner, you cannot save yourself. Child of God, you cannot guarantee a blessing, but you can go to the God who in his might and in his mercy is well able to make the blessing descend. Yes, you cannot bind the cluster of the Pleiades, you cannot loose the belt of Orion, but you serve the God who can, and he is most willing and most able to make bare his arm for the glory of his great name. I trust that's been an encouragement to you. It's the kind of sermon that ought to lift our hearts in joyful expectation for the glory of God, even where we are and with the things that we are doing. You've been listening then to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe or even write a brief review on your favourite podcast app. There's more like this at mediagratii.org, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, some word in season devotions that it was my privilege to do a couple of years ago now, and then John Snyder's The Whole Council podcast. And then if you want to join us again next week, our featured sermon will be Sermon 826, Christ the Glory of His People. Again, thank you for listening, and may God bless you as you go forth, not in your strength, but in His.